Welcome to a new episode of Bone Talks, a podcast where we navigate the world of images through the medium of conversation. My name is Yasemin Bajo, and I'm the project coordinator of Kismet, a collaborative project between Foam and Studio Polat, focusing on visual culture from Turkey, and centered around the question of how different generations of image makers from Turkey give shape to the worlds they live in. As part of Kismet, we show the work of the contemporary artist Ece Gökal. In this episode, Fong talks about her exhibition, After Anait, the importance of non-human witnesses, and whether photographers are the perfect liars. Ece is a visual artist born in Istanbul. In her practice, she explores how photography influences our perception of different locations. Her work on nature landscape and geography serves as a means to better understand herself. For this conversation, we are joined by Larissa Aras, an artist and founder of Poche, an artist-run space in Istanbul. In her work, Larissa focuses on alternative histories, non-human witnesses, and personal narratives. She mainly uses text and image-making in her practice. Hello and uh, welcome uh, to Phone Podcast, broadcasted by Istanbul, Bodrum and Amsterdam. I'd like to very quickly jump into the first question so that uh, we can get a warm uh, start. Ece, I'd like to start with you. Your exhibition at Phone is called After Anahit. First of all, could you explain to us who Anne Hit is and what role she plays in your exhibition? Yeah, sure. Um, Anne Hit is the goddess of fertility, wisdom and water in the pre-Christian Armenian era and was one of the three main deities of her time. There were many temples dedicated to her in the old Armenian kingdom, uh, which was around the upper Euphrates and Munzur River all of which were destroyed mostly by the Roman Empire uh, upon introducing Christianity. Some claim that a bronze bust is the remnant of a statue of Anahit that was destroyed by Roman soldiers, and it is now being exhibited by the British Museum, and uh, it's in its Roman Empire ring by the name Aphrodite, which is a Roman uh, goddess. But on their website, it says that it is, in fact, the statue of Anahita, which is again incorrect because Anahita was the Persian goddess and had no influence or artifacts in the region, as far as, as I know. Many scholars and also the Armenian public believes that the statue is, in fact, Anahit, the Armenian goddess. And there are many convincing evidences to prove that. Yet, by the Western canon, it is not recognized as such. So this controversy is central to the exhibition. She is not entitled to her true name and her true spot in history. Um, appropriation and exploitation of ecosystems and cultural heritage are the main discussions in After Anahit, and Anahit's story is our guide to in exploring these. That's a very um, uh, deep and uh, complex topic, but what do you mean by op- uh, appropriation of... Um, cultural heritage, reappropriation, exploitation, you said, I suppose? Yeah, appropriation and exploitation, yeah. 
For example, when this bust was found uh, in the 19th century by an old villager, um, it was smuggled to Italy to this Italian collector. Uh, and to sell it to the British Museum, the Italian collector then embellished, I think, the statue's history and place in, uh, in culture uh, by selling it as a Roman Empire's statue, because then it is more uh, probably sellable. It has higher value. Uh, in the 19th century. I think we would debate this now, of course. So, uh, and of course, you know, knowledge, I mean, museums are a place of knowledge where you go and learn something. So when British Museum exhibits something as something, then you take it for granted that, okay, it must be this because they have a whole team and whole, you know, like whole resources to, to prepare this exhibition. So um, there are, for example, some calls to the British Museum by Armenian people. I think it was started by an Armenian uh, heritage, so Armenian descendant student in the US uh, to call the statue back to Armenia because they claim it should be exhibited in Armenia. Um, British Museum doesn't even reply to that. So it doesn't benefit the British Museum. So. That is then how exploitation is working. And for Armenian people, since uh, the old Armenian kingdom is now in Turkey, uh, all of their artifacts, all of their history, almost all, but like most of it, is uh, in the hands of other countries. And these countries are historically not friendly countries to Armenia. So all of these uh, things are being uh, framed as however these countries uh, wish them to be framed. So it is never for the benefit of Armenian uh, people, I think, as we see in many examples. There's also another main character apart from Anahit, and that is the glacier lake, Dipsis Gör, and the, the ecosystem, the surrounding landscape. Um, can you introduce uh, uh, us to Dipsis Girl as well, AJ? Yes, my honor. Um, <laughs> because this project actually started with what happened to Dipsis Girl. Uh, Dipsis Girl translates to Fathomless Lake in English. So this was a small but a deep glacier lake and it was living in peace for 12,000 years in the northeastern part of Turkey. Uh, and it is an hour and a half of a drive away from where the bronze busts of Anahit was found. So in 2019, two treasure hunters excavated the site of the lake to look for gold allegedly hidden by the Roman Empire's uh, Legio 15 Apollinaris, which is Apollo's 15th legion. It's a military uh, force of the um, Roman Empire. With the news leaked, many were outraged to discover that the operation was legitimized by the local authorities, so they got permission to do so. As a result, the lake was emptied. They emptied the whole lake, no water left, and no gold was found, and an ancient ecosystem is lost. They filled it up with soil and some water they brought from God knows where, and they claimed that all was good. So the entitlement and ignorance that are deciding the faith of everyone and everything in Turkey uh, are beyond worrisome for me. And I wanted to explore the events that led to the annihilation of this lake because I felt that the lake's fate was shared by many in my homeland. And then 
through the research, deeper I went, I found Anahit's uh, story. So the similarities of her being taken away from where she was and how she's been exhibited by a different name in a different history uh, section in the British Museum, etc. Uh, in my in my heart and in my mind, it all resonated, and it seems awfully um, similar. Yeah, it's uh, it's terribly fascinating. I don't know if that is a good word, but uh, I find yeah. it's um, uh, the, the actually that Dipsy's girl for me feels like it will, that it gave birth to Anahit, and it canalized all that generations, uh, years of years of being completely oppressed to her. And then she went on to for another life in Europe and had another adventure. I find it a really uh, very strong exhibition. Uh, in your approach, Ajay, we could say that Dipsy's Girl becomes uh, personified, capturing the landscape in a portrait format your photograph treats it as an active player in history. Larissa, I'd like to now turn to you. Uh, uh, in your practice, you work with the so-called non-human witnesses. Could you explain what that is, what a non-human witness is? Sure. Um, I mean, uh, for me, non-human witness could be anything from a wall to a plant to a fabric to a material that holds the evidence of human histories experiences or memories. And in Ajay's work, actually, Dipsy's girl was a witness of the exploitations as well. So it doesn't have to be the same uh, understanding that we uh, reflect on human as a witness. It doesn't have to have the same structures as humans does. It just being existing there and holding a memory of the existence, what's happening, is for me a witness. But Probably I can best explain this through an example, which is a work that I've done a few years ago. Um, the work was called Begin to See Through the Darkness. Um, I saw a story about a fig tree on the news and I was so amazed. And I just like, after reading it, I was like, I have to, I have to see this tree. I have to prove that it exists. Um, the story was um, about how this tree was found in a cave in south of Cyprus, close to Limassol. Um, the person who saw this tree was working actually in committee on missing persons in Cyprus and was there to eat a lunch near, in a nearby restaurant by chance. And once he realized this fig tree was there um, in the cave where it's impossible for a tree to grow because of the rocky environment, um, he directly goes to the roots because he knows that if there's something such as a, a walnut tree or a fig tree, there must be something else. And he goes to the roots of the tree to how see it grew. Uh, finally, he found out that there were cloth pieces and human bones. And after DNA, uh, a detailed DNA search, they found out that the, the corpses were belonging to three Cyprus, Turkish Cyprus that were lost since 1974, uh, after the war. Um, the type of the tree was called, I remember, as Andolinia. Uh, which is not endemic to the islands. And uh, one of the persons who was found in the um, in the cave was called Ahmed Jamal, who is actually a fig grower. And he was growing this type of very special Andalonia figs. And it was guessed that his last meal was one of these figs from his garden. And the fig, uh, which became the last meal of Ahmed Jamal before he was killed, grows in 
It grows with the sunlight leaking through the hole on top of the cave and turns into a tree that is exactly the same age of their missing time. Yeah, you need a, you need a moment right now to what's going understand <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, it's. But this story was uh, like this fig tree it's growing. It's really heavy. Uh, the fig tree growing from the belly of Ahmed Jamai, which serves as a as a both the war archive and a cemetery, and blurs the relationship between soil and identity. And for me, it was the the biggest specification of this fig tree was that he it was the witness. It was the witness of the death that is missing for like forty years, and it was the uh, 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 witness of uh, um, the war and the loss. And although when I went there, the fig was gone again, like it, they took the tree because as you know, maybe fig trees roots are very strong. So in order for them to reach the bones, they had to take out the tree. So I didn't find anything. I just heard the story and I knew that it was there and actually found the cave and everything. But even the missingness of this fig tree, um, how it was, uh, there was a forced migration between South and North Cyprus. It's actually, there are many witnesses that we can find our stories in or that the stories that are erased from the uh, society or history. And I mean, I want to say that it's super interesting also how the fig tree tells the story. So through looking at this fig tree, they found this whole history of who Ahmed Jamal is, who is there, what he ate, what happened to him. And if you know how to listen and if you know how to look, if you pay attention, then you find ways to communicate with the non-human uh, in these ways, for example. So it's a super interesting, I think. Yeah, I am still uh, speechless about the story. <laughs> it's, all, it's also a myth, eh? it's almost like those biblical uh, elements that um, a, a tree will grow from the belly of someone and it will make life or, or you know, that will create seven earths, etc. You know, you really gave a concrete example of um, the afterlives and, and yeah, uh, like the transfer of uh, memory. I want to know a bit more about how can non-humans witness and memorize things. And that also relates uh, and how do they generally relate to the idea of memory and collective memory? Those were very good questions, first of all. Thank you, Yasmin. I actually thought of all of my practice and, I have, and how I understand witnessing and what I'm challenging the word witnessing as well. And while I was like thinking of these questions, it, was, it came to my mind that witnessing is actually a very legal term. And we project, as I said, like the witnessing of a human being to, to different um, materials that we think that they're witnessing something else. But what we're, also I can talk for AJ maybe, but we're looking for a different w witnessing as well. It doesn't have to be reaction. It doesn't have to be, it's a total different uh, witnessing as, as I told in the fig tree as well. Um, it could wait for like 40 years and it will become a witness afterwards. So um, it can be in totally different forms compared to human witnesses, such as when you see a church cross engraved to a stone in one of the villages in Kars in South Anatolia, you know that that stone didn't fall from the sky. Or when you come across an abandoned village in Kayakoy Fethiye or Diyarbakir, 
you know those stones remember things, especially more things than you than you remember, definitely, or others remember, because it wasn't um, dictated as in the example of Edge's British Museum. It wasn't constructed. It's there. You have to understand their story and their reading of it, actually. So this is where I understand how witnessing and memorizing things could be, um, or reading through these materials around us. Um, but I can say about like how these ideas relate through, again, an example, because I think these examples lit gives us how to think through in such events that come across. Um, there is a work from a good friend and a great artist, Roj de Turu, uh, called Gund, uh, What's Left is More Than Ashes. Uh, it's a composition of several videos and a pinhole images that mimics porcupine vision. And during the early 1990s, Kurdish villages in the eastern and southeastern Turkey were forcibly evacuated as part of a government counterinsurgency campaign intended to deprive the PKK guerrilla of logistical support. As a result of this forced displacement, many of the abandoned villages in the region were inhabited by returning wild animals. And among these animals is the porcupine, which is used as a spy metaphor in Kurdish culture and is a hero of civilization and mythology, and is, a, is the main focus of her research uh, topic. Well, porcupine becomes a witness and also an agent in the tragedy as well. It holds a memory of survival and also a collective memory of displacement. And porcupine becomes a migrant as well on, of, for his own territories because it's been shared by humans and it's been there like humans. And it's also been in the same ecology and, and same environment. So I think it helps for meaning that what you will read, it gives a much more deeper understanding from a history book that you could read these events and also if you can read these events because they can be erased as well. So these living or non-living witnesses are actually giving you more stories about yourself and your past and your identity and your surrounding than the human constructed narratives, actually. That's uh, really fascinating. Um, I'd like to now turn to Ejen. In your practice, you document different forms of cultural and geographical destruction. We were inspired by a quote uh, found in one of Larissa's projects called uh, Semi-Fiction. It says, while Larissa emphasizes the documentary aspect of photography, she also thinks that photographers are the most talented liars. Eje, how do you uh, relate to this quote? Is this something that resonates with you? Yeah, so, um, well, I agree and disagree with Larissa on this. I think politicians are the most talented liars. Um, following them are probably lawyers, social media influencers, maybe some lovers, some friends. I don't know, this goes on. And I don't know where photographers would stand there. But I, of course, understand why Larissa says that. And we talk about this from time to time. Um, photography shows everything that reflects light, and for us, it mimics memory. Um, but like any memory, it is orchestrated and it is prone to manipulation. So even though it seems like, like a photograph seems like a solid piece of evidence, it is not. And since it acts uh, like representing the truth by showing us our familiar surroundings in the way we see them, it fails because it is not showing us actually 
anything that's the way we see because we don't even know how two people look at the same thing and see like so some people benefit from it like politicians uh, in propaganda or historians like museums etc or documentary photographers uh, I guess a great deal of people but I think in our era not every photographer or artist claims to be showing the truth I think we debated this truth-telling quality of photography for um, a century or longer. And I think now we are in a different place. I don't, uh, for example, I'm not interested in a universal truth. So this is what I think about that. How about you, uh, Larissa? How do you respond to uh, AJ? I definitely I understand it because I we have the same mentality but um mine I get actually I think I'm a bit pissed at, at photographers also myself uh, it's because yeah uh, <laughs> this I know very well <laughs> yeah um not that I'm not a photographer I'm a photographer as well but there's this manipulation about emotions I think and um the, uh, it's more linked to my background and my idea of like how history has been created or uh, narratives has been given and the proof of it and what's missing in it. So I think it was more because that most of we always take for granted what we're seeing as if the seeing is the the primary proof of existence. Uh, not that I'm talking about like all of these ghosts that I'm living with. No, I'm like a, not a uh, not that sentimental about like uh, believing and all that stuff. But um, uh, photography and uh, image becoming the primary uh, ev evidence is kind of problematic. And how, if you master how in, how you can use it, this tool, then you can become the perfect liar. As I am a liar, or AJ is a liar, or you or anyone else. But we always think that if it's existing, then it must be true. So that's the thing that I'm trying to question. And the agency of the photographer, what's the emotion that he's trying to picture there or the frame there or construct there? Because it's all constructed as you all know. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd like to now uh, go to the third and final part of our conversation. Uh, which relates more to your backgrounds. Both of you work intensively with photography, as you, you are both liars and as we are all liars. Uh, but you are also formally trained in other disciplines. Larissa, you studied media, culture and communication at New York University and visual arts at Koch University in Istanbul. Ece, during your bachelor's in photography and video at uh, Yildiz Teknik University in Istanbul, you followed a semester in graphic design at the KBK in The Hague and ultimately finished a master's degree in art in context, a, a course at the UDK in Berlin. To you both, um, how um, these, um, your backgrounds in all those various different disciplines uh, and mediums influence your photographic practice and do those experiences play a role in how you approach photography um i always wanted to be a be, uh, be a journalist actually because journalism has died in the world and especially in my country then i said who else is liars who else are lying better than journalists yeah. no. but it was um then um after working in some institutions i started working 
uh, in my own artisan space and then my artistic practice has started let's say uh, but uh, working like coming from a pretty interdisciplinary background gives you much more opportunities to be independent in the in creating stories and like creating institutions how you want to display it how you want to explain it you can um, as you know have as you have the experience of the user experience of a of a story you can control how it's been how it can be organized and this can be only understood in through different disciplines and i always suggest that like i also work in production of other works for artist friends um as a part-time freelancer job and you understand and you learn a lot of things that you can reflect to your own practice and that becomes a tool for you to create a storyline and especially um with photography there are some lackings in in when you're creating a story of how you can explain it and those tools that you understand from different disciplines comes into play, like sound, like light, like installations, like uh, sculptures, and it becomes part of the whole story building. And I think it's very important uh, if you want to layer it up the the project that you're working on. So, yeah, it gave me these advantages, I would say. <laughs> and you, Ajay? Um. Well, I think it uh, freed me from the idea of becoming a photographer in the traditional sense. Uh, I studied photography, so it was very competitive and super technical. And there were so many rules, so many do's, so many don'ts, and the best photographers and the best uh, practices. And there is this non-artsy side to photography still. And uh, I think my background uh, as an illustrator uh, freed me from uh, aiming to be the best photographer. Um, I use photography as my main medium, but I work with other mediums as well, uh, like Clarissa does too, um, because I tried so many materials, uh, sculptures, uh, drawing, this and that. And as I said, I worked as an illustrator for some years before I dived into photography. So even though photography is uh, mostly in the center of my projects, I often find myself doing other stuff uh, besides the photos or on the photos. I like to deconstruct and reconstruct the prints. I like to work on the prints as well. So for me, it is truly whatever helps to tell the story that is in my head. It doesn't have to look in a certain way. Uh, it just has to tell the story in a proper language, visual language. Finally, you are friends, you know each other on a personal level. How do you inspire each other and help each other out in your practice? Yeah, so we met, uh, I don't know when exactly, but I guess it's been seven or eight years uh, in a workshop that was uh, led by the uh, History Foundation, Tarih Vakfı in Turkey, uh, and it was a collaboration between photographers and sociologists and uh, authors. And uh, it was about the uh, following the traces of the Armenian genocide in Turkey. And um, well, it was a very um, troublesome year for Turkey. So when we started the project, there were some uh, bombings and clashes 
uh, on our route uh, because it was a road trip from Istanbul to Yerevan. And we would be stopping by the villages and the places where the genocide was uh, the harshest. And we would uh, make a work on a project and collect stories and uh, end up in Yerevan. Uh, so the Turkey part of the project eventually got cancelled, but we had many, many, many meetings about the security, etc. And in all of these meetings, I was there with Larissa. And so our friendship started with actually talking about this topic. And uh, and then I quit the project because Turkey part was cancelled and it was only Yerevan. And I thought it is, well, I, I, I had a dream and I couldn't do that project in only Armenia. And that project I did as my master thesis project in Berlin uh, later on. So, and Larsa knows the beginning of that idea till the very end. And she had an artist-run place actually in Istanbul for many years. And uh, that project that I came up with during our uh, uh, workshop uh, was exhibited in her place, in her space. So we collaborated on exhibitions and also a text in the last years, but we also help each other with our individual projects as well. I love to talk to Larissa uh, about my ongoing work, my future dreams. And I know she understands me from day one. We had this click, I think. We are both uh, angry people, uh, but we are <laughs> dedicated to our work. We express ourselves like in similar ways. Uh, the way we use materials and mediums and our pers perspectives are also, I think, quite similar, but uh, also very different. And this uh, creates a great dynamic, I find, and it challenges me sometimes. And well, it's the way I like things, so we are very close friends. Larissa, tell us about um, your um I'll your friendship. tell you about Edge. Edge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> as as Edge said, we <laughs> we met a long time ago in a totally different Istanbul, in a totally different world. Um, but um I our friendship had stayed uh stronger among the years because in Turkey because of a lot of reasons that I wouldn't get into right now because we it, we wouldn't finish in two hours. Um, but because of like less fundings, not much institutions, but because of like all of this art crowd is stuck to each other for their resistance of still becoming an artist or being in the art scene still or producing, not even the ecosystem I'm talking about, even producing among all of the things that are happening in the world and in locally especially. And decisions to leave, decisions to stay has different effect on both of us individually. And these friendships and these uh, collaborations in works and also in uh, in collaborations in life are actually the most important part of art, I think. Uh, and outside of that, I think no, nothing is important because when you do, when you work on a project, the uh, I. Personally, I was missing of critique and reflection that what I'm working on, what I'm talking about, and the perspective that Edge gives me uh, from an outsider, but also from an insider perspective, she gives me a lot of uh, critique on how uh, uh, contextually the work could be or should be or would be. And we always talk about this in conversation, and this is very valuable for me. 
Other than that, we do exhibitions together. Every time I have a thing in mind, I have to talk with AJ because she knows the medium, also has a distance with the medium. So that's a very cri critical thing that I'm missing in most of my photographer friends. Sorry, guys. But yeah, uh, AJ has that <laughs> critical distance that I say that there's always a uh, questionable things about photography, but as a medium to think about it, she always takes it as primary understanding of like uh, creating things. And you can create totally a different thing with the photographic understanding, as you know. And this is a very important case. And also another most important thing that we have a we have the same political stance and it's very hard to find these days, to be honest. So um, that's yeah. also gives you a lot of equilibrium with the subjects that you're working on without the exploitation as we go back to the first beginning of the stories. Um, she's one of the few people that I know has the uh, justice with the work that she's doing and not over exploiting it. So I think that's very important as well. And these are very, this is my school. I don't go to master's degree and I did my artist round space and these friendships are my professors, my school, my advisors, my mentorship, and we grow together. So I think it's very important. Yeah, you put it so nicely. <laughs> it's so inspirational. Um, so speaking of collaboration and inspiration and creating work coll um, collectively, um, let's go to the delicious bit of the podcast, the photo recipe. A feature we introduced last episode where we ask our artists to share a photographic instruction based on their practice that can inspire our photographing audience when taking their next pictures. So, Eje and Larissa, what have you been cooking for us? Um, I would give as uh, like a photo recipe to say that um, don't take anything you see as granted. There's always a backstory, meaning that um, when you take a picture, what you're fitting inside the frame, how you're going to print that, in which paper, in what, or when you see a picture, uh, an image, how it's been printed, in which house it's been taken, how who was holding what, and how the bodies were performed, how the ecosystem was performed, which, like, if it's a landscape, if it's horizontal, how it's positioned within the art history, all of these informations are actually also agents when you're a photographer. You're not the only one who's taking the image. There are so many layers on top of each other that's working with you, the decisions that you make. It's not the only frame that you decide on. It's all of the technology that, or all of the uh, content that you decide to put in. And it's also very uh, linked with social, economical, political um, relations with what in your surrounding when you take that picture. So there is always this backstory that you have to always think. So that's my recipe. Just be aware of that backstory or look for that backstory rather than your picture itself. Um, I can give one example to this as an end note. Um, uh, going back to our exhibition after Anahid, for example, the photo of the bust is being exhibited with the name of Anahid in a museum in Amsterdam, whereas the same bust is being exhibited in the British Museum by the name of Aphrodite 
in London. So I think uh, never take anything for granted, even if it's a museum or even if it's an encyclopedia or, or internet pusher. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Asimin. It's the end of our conversation, right? I, I wished I did never end it. <laughs> it was uh, super interesting. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for hosting us. The exhibition After Anahit by Edje Gurka is on display until the 17th of September at FOAM in Amsterdam. Next Phone Talks episode will dive deeper into the works of Ara Güler, the iconic photojournalist also called the Eye of Istanbul. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. 